Welcome to Veterinary Advice, Animal News, and Views, the show dedicated to pets and the people who love them. Brought to you by DrRogerHolisticVet.com, the place for safe and effective natural healing for dogs and cats. Now, here's your host, practicing veterinarian, Dr. Roger Welton. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Veterinary Advice, Animal News and Views. I'm your host, Roger Welton, practicing veterinarian, coming to you from the Florida Space Coast. We are in a pre-recorded format again tonight. This episode was recorded earlier in the day. I do apologize for that. We will be back to the live format soon. It's just that scheduling constraints currently are making it difficult to go live. We will be back to the live format soon, I promise just bear with us while we're still getting you the important information, the topics, and the novel episodes uh, in, in this manner that we're able to at this current point in time. We are talking tonight about diarrhea. Now, <clears throat> you know you're working in a unique profession when you actually have an episode labeled diarrhea, one word. Um, diarrhea is something that most of us as people... In fact, I don't know anybody who hasn't had some experience with it, but most of us have had experience with it, whether it was from infection, parasitic infestation, eating the wrong items that don't agree with us, irritable bowel, inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, you name it. There's many different presentations and causes for diarrhea in people, and the same holds true for dogs and cats. Now, for most of us, and for most of our dogs and cats, Diarrhea is not something that they always live with, but there are some pets that, like some people, have chronic issues where the frequency of the recurrences of diarrhea are such that they rarely have an extended period of time without having to deal with it, or there are some pets that just have it all the time. What what varies potentially is just the severity. And then there's others where it, it's not only diarrhea, but there's blood in there and mucus at times, you know, and, and so it's these chronic, chronic recurring cases, no matter the severity, whether there's blood or, or not, or mucus or not, we want to discuss today, because it's not a fun way to live, it causes pain, it causes discomfort, cramping, it also robs, potentially robs the pet of nutrients, important nutrients that are not getting absorbed because of the different physiological processes at work in the different kinds of diarrhea. So we're going to get into that into a good, in a good amount of detail because I'm going to give you some, I want to go over causes and give you some potential tips that you can help your pet with the chronic diarrhea. You know, most people that listen to me regularly or read my work or watch my YouTube videos know that I'm an integrative veterinarian. I am very a very big proponent of propping up the body in a holistic manner to do what it does best, which is heal itself. And and so I'm looking for nutritional and alternative measures that we can take that have no side effects to try to manage these cases. And in a lot of cases, we have success. But there are some cases where you know there is some medication that's necessary. And so we don't want to draw the line anywhere. We want to do it all for the sake of the pet. And we're going to discuss that. Now, there's no, no email questions tonight. I want to remind everyone, though, that if you want to have your questions or comments addressed by me live on the air, just email them to comments at webdvm.net. 
That would be comments at web-dvm.net is where you would type it. W-E-B-dvm, comments at web-dvm.net. So email me anytime. Normally we have one or two. We don't have any tonight, and that's fine. We are, on, we are not on live call-in, obviously, because we're pre-recorded. Uh, but that is a toll-free number for, uh, for the future in case you want to call in once we go back to the live format. So that all stated, <clears throat> let's talk about diarrhea. <laughs> um, when I first graduated veterinary school, oh, I was just so surprised about the frequency by which I was getting diarrhea cases. You know, a lot of vomiting and diarrhea. It just goes with the profession. There I was coming out of University of Illinois teaching hospital having managed very high-end, very complicated cases using high-tech diagnostics, very involved cases, good workups, excellent level of medicine. Went through the Animal Medical Center in, in New York City, which is a premier animal health facility with a specialty on every floor, ophthalmology, surgery, internal medicine, phenomenal place. And did some some pretty high-end work upstairs. So I graduate, and I'm all ready to manage a Cushing's disease case or a complicated diabetic, uh, complicated, complex surgery, orthopedic surgery, soft tissue surgery, what have you. But realistically, most of what I was dealing with day in and day out was, was diarrhea and vomiting because it's so common so let's talk about the different kinds of diarrhea and why it is so common. So there's there's what's known as osmotic diarrhea. And osmotic diarrhea refers to the pet eating something that has osmolytic properties. So a substance that's an osmolite attracts water to it. And osmolytic properties means that it carries a charge and attracts water. So a good example of that is some people periodically do sea salt colonics. Salt is an osmolite. It attracts water to it. So as the salt is the salt solution is traveling through the gut, it pulls water into the gut, and it just flows through. And people who've done this before know the result: explosive diarrhea, essentially. But it has a cleansing effect because that water is just flushing the bowel as it goes through. Not not something that's wise to do all the time, but some people will do it maybe on a monthly basis to give themselves a good colon cleanse that's that's not very irritative. So that's a good example of an osmolite. Now osmolites can occur because of primary ingestion, aka such as the salt, or osmolites can occur because of malabsorption. So there could be various nutrients out there that are not getting broken down properly and absorbed because of physiological aberrations in the digestion process. And as a result, these osmolites, rather than get broken down, stay in the gut and will cause osmotic diarrhea. But the most common cause for osmotic diarrhea is, is usually going to be dietary indiscretion. So they eat something that is pulling water into the gut, they get some diarrhea. It's usually transient, it's self-limiting, not a big deal. The second type of diarrhea is called secretory diarrhea. Secretory diarrhea refers to the the, the body's actually pushing water into the bowel. So rather than bowel contents pulling water into the lumen of the bowel itself. We have the body pushing water into it, secreting water into the bowel. And the reason the body's doing this in most cases is either because of an infestation of a parasite or an infection. And that's the body's way of trying to purge the bowel by pushing water 
through the lining of the intestine, trying to decrease the ability of the bacteria and parasites to adhere to the lining and continue to infect and proliferate. So that's secretory diarrhea, most common cause infection. And then the third kind of diarrhea is called exudative diarrhea. Exudative diarrhea refers to secretions that occur at the lining of the gut. It could be mucus. It could be serum. It could be a combination of serum and mucus. In some cases, it could be pus. In other cases, blood. Exudative diarrhea is probably our most difficult and most troubling presentation because that is usually indicative of some kind of underlying inherited bowel problem. And what, what could that be? That could be food allergy. It could be inflammatory bowel disease, which is an autoimmune disease. It could be irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, which is sensitivity of the bowel to certain proteins. Uh, the proteins could be any number of proteins. Sometimes it's just one protein. And these are most typically our chronic recurring cases. And really, this is going to be my main focus because clearly, your dog or cat gets a case of secretory diarrhea. There's an infection. Usually, there's an abnormal bacterial proliferation, whether a virus predisposed them to it, parasite, what have you. You treat the parasite. You treat the bacteria, the infection. Viruses are usually self-limiting at some point, with a few exceptions, and they recover. <clears throat> Osmotic diarrhea. They stop eating the offending item. The dietary indiscretion has been recognized and ceased. Life is good. They go back to normal. But exudative diarrhea, these are our chronic problems. And, you know, these are the dogs and cats that are, you know, they're, they're coming in repeatedly for this issue. So let's talk about each one at a given time. I want to start with food allergy because this is the first place we look. Food allergy is actually quite common in dogs and cats. And I know the new rage is grains, 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 grains. Grain-free, 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 grain-free. Yes, yes, when, when you have a, a dog or cat with chronic recurring bowel problems, you want to look at food allergy. Yes, you should eliminate grains in the diet. Grassy grains, they could definitely potentially react to those. I want to say wheat is somewhere like, depending on the list you look at, five or seven on the food allergy list. And, and so it's, it's up there. Um, everybody looks at corn, and, and I, I do agree that we should have a corn-free diet as well. That is a grassy grain, technically. But corn is like 27 or 28 on the list. So should we eliminate it? Of course. But we, we certainly don't want that to be the only limited ingredient that we're taking out. Barley is another one. That's somewhere in the top 10. I, I, the, the exact number uh, escapes me, but, but it, it's something that's common enough. And even oats can react, so we want to we want to take oats out of there as well. So, if the grains are no higher collectively than seven on the list, then what is causing the food allergy? Well, most commonly, folks, it's it's an animal source protein that's the main offender. Very often, though, it's it's a combination. So it's not just any one protein; it's a collection of proteins. The most common two are beef and chicken, because the way food allergies work is they the bowel gets sensitized over time. The body gets sensitized. So it's a repeated ingestion of these same proteins over and over again that gets us there. And that's why when I start discussing food allergy with people, when their pet has developed, let's say, irritable bowel or you know, food allergy suddenly at four or five years of age, I commonly get this answer. Well, doc, 
I don't understand how this can happen. I've been feeding her the same thing all of her life. So why suddenly is it a problem? Well, that's exactly it. Eating the same proteins over and over again is what is part of the process. Now, there's an inherited predisposition to get sensitized. So I don't want you to take this information and think you need to vary your pet's diet. That's not how it works. Because if you're varying the diet all the time and feeding them something different all the time, they're going to get diarrhea from that. <laughs> so, so don't take this the wrong way. It's an inherited predisposition to get sensitized over time from eating the same proteins over and over again. But it's not the act of eating the same proteins over and over again specifically. just want to be clear on that. So <clears throat> what do we want to do? We want to engage in what's called a hypoallergenic food trial. So what should a good hypoallergenic food trial have? Well, first off, it's got to be free of chicken and beef. And I would say at this point in time, since you know lamb used to be a good hypoallergenic source because it was a novel protein back in the day when I was a vet student, but what happens with, with these commercial diets is that they try to mimic the prescription diets and suddenly suddenly they are using lamb, for example, in their diets to try to pass themselves off as a, oh, look, we're just like these prescription diets. We have lamb, which is completely wrong, but they've kind of ruined that as a protein, a novel protein source. So novel protein source is a protein source your pet has never been exposed to. It is very likely your pet, even if <clears throat> you've been feeding you know, say Purina or, you know, name your, your average commercial diet that you can get at a grocery store, there's a very strong likelihood that there's been some lamb ingredient in there, especially if you haven't scrutinized the ingredients. But we can all agree that beef and chicken are just about anything. And even if it's a chicken-based diet, there's some beef byproduct in there. There's, you know, there, there could be some bone meal from uh, cattle. And technically, it's still a beef source. Even though it's bone, it's it's it comes from a, from a cow or a bull. So, in that regard, <clears throat> novel protein source is very important. So, what are the good novel protein sources these days? I like venison still. Venison is is still a pretty solid one. Duck is a good one. Believe it or not, this is going to sound weird, but rabbit is a really nice source. And pretty much, you want all of the carbohydrates to be complex, and you want them coming from primarily vegetables. Now. In some some cases of inflammatory bowel disease, which is a little bit different than food allergy, I'll, I'll explain that difference in a moment, vegetables can sometimes be too irritated to the bowel because of all the fiber. So you may want to go with like a venison and potato type diet because potato is a good carbohydrate source, but it's not going to irritate the bowel because it's low residue. So a venison and potato diet is great. If you're not going to go prescription, meaning you're purchasing it from a veterinarian's office, you want to make sure you peruse the ingredients. Make sure there's no preservatives because preservatives are another potential allergy source. Not very common, but you got to eliminate all of them if you're going to do this right. So <clears throat> no preservatives, no grains, novel protein source. You could also cook for your pet. You know, if you want to go that route, that's fine. You can, you know, prepare fresh vegetables. You want to avoid hind gut fermenting vegetables like broccoli. Broccoli, as we know, gives people gas because it tends to ferment in the hind gut. Well, it does the same to dogs and cats. So you want to, you know, go minimal on the broccoli, stick with perhaps green beans are a really nice vegetable source. I'd go easy on the fruit because the citric acid in some of the fruits can be 
a little bit irritative. So I'd probably, for diarrhea cases, not, not really include too much fruit. But uh, cooked spinach is another another good option. And um, cooked carrots, actually, are a great, great option for chronic bowel diarrhea patients. Very well absorbable, but, you know, it gives you the beta carotenes and antioxidants and all that. And if you're going to home cook, I would advise a ratio of about 50% meat to 50% veggies. Uh, for dogs, for cats, I would go about 80% meat, 20% veggies. Or with cats, you can try even go no veggies at all because, as we know, cats are pure carnivores in every sense. They can make everything they need from every nutrient that a cat requires. They can make it from protein, even glucose, no problem. So, you know, you can try 100% meat. Some of these cats will benefit from a little bit of fiber and the beta carotene and antioxidants and vegetables. To make it more palatable and tasty, for some pets that simply don't want to eat vegetables, you can try pureeing them into a paste, and sometimes that'll, you know, if you kind of chop the meat up into it, that's a good way to get them to eat. For those of you who like to feed raw, you can use any of these meat sources. They're available raw. I know one lady that I see, she gets, she gets uh, rabbit patties for her bulldog. And um, the dog does quite well on them. She's really done a very good job in controlling allergies by going with rabbit patties. And the company she uses actually has, you know, it's raw rabbit, but it admixed in there is the veggies. So she doesn't have to prepare separate vegetables. If you're going to go that route, like when I talked about with my raw food series, my raw feeding series, you definitely want to not use grocery store-bought meat. You don't want to even use the butcher. I would use these companies that, have sprouted up that actually will freeze the meat on site, ship it to you frozen, you freeze it upon arrival, and then thaw it out as you need. Because the freezing process really has a bacteriostatic effect on the meat. And, you know, if we're going to go that route, we want to make sure we're doing it as safely as possible, especially for a compromised gut. We don't want to risk raw food toxicity, bacterial poisoning. So uh, that that's the, the feeding that I'm going to recommend, go hypoallergenic. And, and you want to give this diet like a good six to eight weeks. You want to give it its due diligence. Um, and, and I also want to mention, if you don't want to go through all this preparation and you don't want to have to, you know, you have a busy life like I do, <laughs> you, you don't necessarily have the time nor the wherewithal to be, you know, waiting on site to get frozen meat to show up, purchasing meat from reputable sources, preparing fresh veggies, cooking for your pet. You know, if you don't have time for this stuff, you know, the prescription diets are a very good option. They're grain-free. They're preservative-free. They're not cheap, but they also have novel protein sources. Another cool thing, there's one particular prescription diet I really like called Royal Canin and Allergenic. It's actually not a no novel protein source. It, it basically cleaves all the carbohydrate chains and all of the protein chains into such small segments that they can't react with the gut. So it's non-reactive, not because of all the criteria that I just discussed, non-reactive because the chains are so small. Typically, the body's reacting when it's reacting to proteins, to, to the big chain proteins. So we're all familiar with gluten. Gluten's a huge protein present in wheat. And, you know, we do see reaction to it because of the sheer size of it. The body can have trouble assimilating it. So when you cleave the proteins and cut them into really small segments, like some of these diets do, like anallergenic, you're reducing their reactivity to nil. Really nice diet, anallergenic. Not cheap, but it makes your life easier. Um, not all of us have time to prepare fresh food for our pets, and so that's a good second choice to go through. So six to eight weeks on the hypoallergenic diet, and you're looking for a gradual improvement. Folks, it's not going to happen overnight. Six to eight weeks is the number because that's how long it can take. 
if the stools go back to normal, you have proven your pet has a food allergy. What's your solution? To keep feeding what you're feeding. You have solved the problem. Now, at some point, because your pet has a an inherited tendency to sensitize to proteins, at some point you may have to switch to yet another novel protein source or go with an anallergenic that doesn't require novel protein source. But whatever the case, just because it works for quite a while doesn't mean it'll work always and forever because there's this inherited predisposition to get sensitized to the same protein source. Hopefully that makes sense. And if you have any questions on this, feel free to email me. I, I'm happy to clarify anything and I can go over it with you. Uh, live on the air next episode. So the the next scenario is, okay, so it works somewhat. Things are better, but you know they're still not great. Stools are still loose intermittently or they're kind of loose all the time, but still a little bit better. Well, for these cases, I'm gonna rec- what I'm going to advise is, well, there's probably you know a food allergy component, but this, this pet may have inflammatory bowel disease, IBD. So let me explain the difference between food allergy and IBD. Food allergy is a reaction to ingested proteins. And we could sort of put it in there with IBS, you know, irritable bowel syndrome. Body reacts poorly to certain certain proteins. They're, I don't want to say they're necessarily one and the same because IBS can happen from stress as well. But food allergy is one of our most common causes of IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. Inflammatory bowel disease, IBD, is an autoimmune disease. These are your dogs that have ulcerative colitis. They have lymphocytic plasmacytic enteritis, or another condition we'll see is lymphangiectasia. There's all kinds of different presentations. This is an autoimmune disease, meaning that the body is actually attacking the bowel itself. And so for these cases, the pet may require steroid, ultimately, to calm that immune system down, at least for a period of time. I don't jump right to a steroid unless things are severe. If we have bloody mucousy diarrhea that's not getting resolved on a hypoallergenic diet, yes, that pet needs a steroid at least for three to six weeks. And we, we try to taper down the dose over time and find the minimum the minimal dose or sometimes try to wean them off altogether. If, we're, if we maintain a hypoallergenic diet, you can do that. And if you have mild to moderate disease. However... If things are not that severe, things are a little bit better with the hypoallergenic diet, but not quite there, then we can try things like probiotics. Probiotics are basically you're you're inoculating the gut with good bacteria. So there are quote unquote good bacteria, whole different you know a, a whole uh, line of flora, different kinds of what they're called bacterial flora that are essential in the digestion process. And when things like IBD occur the good bacteria can get crowded out by bad bacteria. And so when we're giving probiotics, we're giving a daily inoculation of good bacteria. You want to be careful with your source of probiotics. It is a a supplement. It is not regulated by the FDA. So I would advise a veterinary-grade source. We have in my practice a paste that's excellent called ProBios. It comes from a company that's very reputable. They make other pharmaceuticals and... The proof is in the pudding, it works. But if you're just buying this stuff, you know, at any health food store or online or something like that, chances are you you may be getting a fake product. So you want to make sure you get a veterinary grade one. Just pick up the phone, call your vet, say, hey, I'd like to purchase some probiotic. Most of them are not going to require a visit to pr- pick up probiotic because it's not a prescription item. I sell it to anybody. Um, I just want people to get good veterinary grade supplements, and probiotic is no, is no different. So strongly advise probiotic. I would also advise digestive enzymes. So 
those of you who follow Dr. Roger HolisticVet.com, I have um, one of the, one of my product lines is a multivitamin. I sell these through my clinic as well. A multivitamin that has digestive enzymes in it. So multivitamins are good to round out the nutrition, especially if you're going to do home cooked diets. A multivitamin is a good idea because it's it's hard with a home cooked diet to really capture the full well rounded nutrient base of a pet whether dog or cat. So a multivitamin is a good idea. These multivitamins have active digestive enzymes that do not activate until the the digestion process begins. So they, the, the, these enzymes are actually not released until they hit the stomach. And what are they doing? They're helping them digest, the digestion process. They're breaking down nutrients, cleaving them into smaller segments, maximizing absorption, minimizing inflammation, and they can be a big part of the solution. So I want to try and exhaust all these things before breaking out that steroid. The other thing, too, is before breaking out a steroid, I typically want a diagnosis because I want to know what's the magnitude of disease and what's the specific physiological process with the IBD. Is it lymphocytic plasmacytic, which is a certain kind of cellular infiltrate, or is it lymphangiectasia, which is an abnormality of the lymphatic apparatus of the lining of the intestine? You know, you want to know the differences because depending on the presentation, you know, you, first of all, you get a diagnosis and you've confirmed disease, but secondly, you get an idea of how aggressive you need to get. And I want to get as minimally aggressive as I have to with a steroid. You don't play around with those. So colonoscopy is a very good idea, folks. Um, well, not just colonoscopy. Let's call it endoscopy, and we would do an upper and lower end endoscopy. So lower endoscopy goes up the rear end, <laughs> and that would be colonoscopy. We not only have a look around there and look for ulcerations or polyps or things of that nature, but we can also use a little alligator clip that we insert into the scope and we can take little biopsy samples. The biopsy samples are tiny, but give us a wealth of information. Based on that information, we get a diagnosis. We do the same with the upper GI, They go, but it goes down the esophagus into the stomach. Through the stomach into the upper small intestine, we can look around and see the other end of the gut and get an idea of what's going on. This is done very routinely in human medicine. It's not invasive at all. We just push propofol, which is an IV anesthetic that's very well tolerated, super safe, and they wake up like they've just taken a nap. They can usually go home and eat a meal uh, shortly afterwards, just like with people. So we just push propofol with an IV catheter. We can knock these out in about 30 minutes, and we get a diagnosis. And if so if you can afford that level of care, I would strongly advise getting that diagnosis. But you can try these other things, exhaust them, and break out the medicine if we need to go there. Last thing I want to talk about is stress. If you have a stressed out pet that has chronic diarrhea, dealing with stress is very important. So, you know, it can be difficult. You can't sit you can't sit a cat or a dog down on a couch and, you know, talk out their problems and their issues. It's hard to minimize environmental stress. Some animals are just wound up like clocks. You just It's just the, the, the long and the short of it, and it's very hard to fix that. So with some of these pets, we can think about maintaining them, the stressed out ones I'm talking, on St. John's wort. St. John's wort is an herb that is known to increase serotonin in the brain. Again, you want to go pharmaceutical grade, St. John's wort. Watch your sources. Talk to your vet. Look at reviews online. If you're going to buy online, be careful about what you get. You want to make sure you're getting real St. John's wort. Over time, St. John's wort increases serotonin in the brain by inhibiting the enzyme that takes it up. Serotonin is the well-being neurotransmitter in the brain. It's, re it's, it's flowing abundantly in the brain during times of joy, contentment, and happiness. 
So when we have a net increase in serotonin, it reduces stress, feelings of panic, aggression, all that good stuff. It can help these pets. If St. John's wort, after 30 to 60 days of treatment, doesn't get you there, then you can think about Prozac. Uh, it's, we, we use it generically in dogs very commonly, and sometimes in cats. It's Generically, it's called fluoxetine. And another one is called amitriptyline. Amitriptyline is more commonly used in cats. It's used in people for panic disorders. But dealing with stress is abundantly important. For cats, you can think about putting in plug-in diffusers that have a pleasing pheromone. A pheromone is a biochemical messenger. In this case, it's aerosolized, and the cat senses it, and it provides a soothing uh, pheromone for them, and that could be part of keeping them calm as well. We're starting to look at things like aromatherapy and acupuncture for dealing with stress as well. Uh, Acupuncture, I've had some success in, in, in handling stress. You could also think about finding calming supplements that have the protein or the amino acid tryptophan in them. Tryptophan is calming. The abundant amino acid in turkey or one of the abundant amino acids is tryptophan, which gives us that very commonly recognized post-Thanksgiving meal stupor when we gorge on turkey. So tryptophan-based calming supplement, drrogerholisticvet.com does have a product like that. There's also ginger root and chamomile. These are very common things. um, Kava root and valerian could also be very helpful for these guys. So stress management is abundantly important because, as I mentioned, it is a contributing factor to cases of irritable bowel syndrome or IBS. So I sorted through the diarrhea for you folks. Um, not the most wonderful topic, but very relevant. It's something we deal with in veterinary medicine all the time. Thank you for listening this evening. That is our show. Look forward to getting any comments or questions on this topic. And I do thank you for tuning in. Have a great night, everybody. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over and by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.